Magnetize your eyes. One, two, lash. The original magnetic eyelash. Wait, your eyes aren't magnetic. One strip of lashes sits on top of your natural eyelash. A second strip goes underneath. Micro magnets connect them to each that other. That sounds heavy. The micro magnets are so light, it'll feel like you're not wearing anything at all. Really? Really. Try this game changing technology for yourself. Listeners can receive $10 off with the code LIFESTYLE just for tuning in. Hurry over to 12lash.com today. Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm late to transportation. Shut up. You're here. And good thing because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. So I know that I've had a lot of uh, comedians on the show, but I it's where I came from with stand-up, and it's kind of been nice to go back and speak with some and, and see how they're doing. And one of them I was so happy to speak with is Wayne Fetterman, who has had a career since 1985 um, in comedy. And he's beloved because he is such a delightful human being, as you will hear from our conversation. He's currently on the road touring with Judd Apatow. Um, and he's been in a ton of Judd Apatow films, which we speak about. I admire him. And I really wanted to hear what it's like to get to be an actor, a writer, and now he's doing music as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with the one and only Wayne Fetterman. You may know him, um, of course, from the Geico commercial with Kenny Rogers Correct. or um, Del Monte's Fruit Cup commercial. But he is probably more famous for um, the zillions of roles, including Legally Blonde, yeah. X-Files, right. Baywatch, of course, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Funny People. Um, I first discovered you on The Larry Sanders Show. Um, but there are so many more, including Knocked Up, as well as I, we're going to talk about, Wayne, your own specials, your comedy festival, your podcast series, which I think has come to an end. It has. And um, as well as your live shows, like your performances with Sarah Silverman, and also um, so much more, especially your being in Maria Bamford's special, which I also loved. Her Thank you. Special. Thank you. Well, you seem to know a lot about me. That feels good. So you went to NYU and Stella Adler and... I studied with Stella Adler. Not at her school, with Stella. Oh, wow. Did anyone make the joke then about, like, Stella? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, because Brando is her most famous student. We had a great time. She was, you know, obviously part of the... I was into, you know, the group theater, and she, uh, she studied with Stanislavski a little bit in Paris. And so that's her great claim... To fame, like I study with Stanislavski, what these other people are teaching is not what he was professing. I know the actual how to do it. Moscow Arts Theater—that's what it was called. So she, um, so just so you know, as you're sitting here, and I have the plaque for Employee of the Month, and I appreciate it. It goes from Stella Adler. It goes from Moscow Stanislavski Moscow Arts Theater to Stella Adler. To Wayne Fetterman. That's the history of modern acting right there. It's incredible. It's incredible. What did you get out of going to acting school? I had never been to New York City. I was from Plantation, Florida. A bit of a hick. I wouldn't, like a suburban hick. Like, not sophisticated. Never seen a, never went to Broadway. Never, none of this. 
museums, all of that stuff. So what I got out of NYU and Stella Adler was an introduction to the the big world of New York City and Broadway and off-Broadway and comedy clubs. And I would say the main thing I got was that I auditioned for comedy clubs because I wanted to be a comedian as well as an actor. So that's how I got into, I mean, not how I got into it, but that, that was my path. Were the two worlds um, disparate then? A little bit, a okay. little bit. Like Stella, like Stella was very much into like big idea theater. Like he, you know, awake and sing and the strike and people, everyone in the theater is yelling strike at the end of the play. Like that kind of very lefty kind of social movement theater. And I, Wayne Fetterman, guess who what I was into besides stand-up was like Neil Simon. Like that's what I was into. You would say he was part of an odd couple, but you wouldn't say that he was okay. (laughs) I wouldn't say he was a prisoner of second Amendment. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So it just I always gravitated towards comedy. That's just yeah, that's that was my strong suit. All right, so you couldn't get SAG work in New York, even though you were doing so well in stand-up and everyone knew you. I was making my way in stand-up. And my, speaking of SAG, which is, stands for the Screen Actors Guild. Right. My strategy was I wasn't going to go because I wanted to be an, a comedian who could also act. That was my strategy, like, like a Billy Crystal or something like, like that. Like that was my, my strategy. So... Or Steve Martin, like, you know, that kind of thing. Those were, those were the people you looked up to. Just white people. So I... Just white males. <laughs> just white males. No, all of them. Boys. All, Let's call them boys. So <laughs> when I got, if I got my SAG card, because there were so many doors shut in my face here in New York to just get commercials or any, get, come up for anything. Like, they're like, you're not in the union. We don't even want to talk to you. Until you're in the union. Once I got my SAG card in New York, that was my golden ticket to Los Angeles. And so as soon as you got it, you wanted out of here? Mm-hmm. Why? I just thought it was a bigger pond. I thought it was the pond. It was the ocean. I also like driving. L.A. is like suburbs to me. So it's, it, was, it was a good fit. I already had like a pretty good act by the time I came out there. Like I'd already been on television a couple times, cast out of New York. That's how I got my SAG card through stand-up, not through acting. How did you get in front of Allison Jones? Tell me about the Parent Trap. I loved the original with Haley Mills. I'm still hoping that. Well, um, this is a good question. This is a very good question. Um, I, I got an agent, and they they sent me out, and I read, and I got the role. It was that simple. I'd never met her before. It was just great. It was. I mean, it's a one scene, which, by the way, as you know, in movies is my thing. Doing a Wayne Fetterman. But it's called the Fetterman and Out. Let's talk about your acting slash writing slash comedy because I think they all come together. And maybe I'm wrong, but you know, like for example, with Judd Apatow, you're in his films all the time a as few an of actor. Them, few of them. Yes. You open for him as a comedian. This tour, yes, I do. Are there times when you also write with or for him? A little bit. I am co-producing his Netflix special, which we're taping at Just for Laughs. That's why you're seeing me here, because he was running it last night. In New York, getting yes, ready for yeah. it. And now we're going on tour. We're going to D.C., we're going to Boston, we're going to Providence, and then we're going to head into Montreal to tape some shows. So I saw it, and I would say that the crowd was laughing, I think, about 98% of the time, maybe 95 Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be writing for yourself simultaneously while you're also writing for another stand-up? 
Well, Judd, I wouldn't say I'm writing for. I'm saying I would more help shape the act. So how does that, like, give an example of well, a specific like, joke? Um, Judd does a bit about how he likes to <laughs> pretend that no matter what you eat, it's healthy. Yes. Okay? Yes. Did you see it last night? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he talks to the audience, and inevitably someone yells out a burger or Big Mac or something like that. And then he goes, uh, you know, it's got beef, which is your meat, you know, your protein, and it has amino acids, and it's also probably has antibiotics in it, which is great for you. And then I said, when we were kind of like riffing it out, just off stage, I said, what about Z-Pack? One little antibiotic reference in his run. I throw it in. He's like, yeah, I think I'll try that. And he did it, and it worked, and I think it's going to make it. Okay, cool. It must feel so good. I mean, how does it feel when you get to see your jokes either on an award show or on Fallon? You wrote for— um... Yeah, it's good. It's good. I, I like writing for myself more, but— You do? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Have you ever written— But I'm pretty good. I mean, I have to say, my, I feel like my comedy whisperer qualities are not like, oh, let me write an act for Judd. I don't think I could do that. Let me write an act for Jimmy Fallon. I don't think I could do that. But when I see them do it, I'm like, okay, I know how to fix that. I know how to turn that around. I know how to get rid of this. I'll, yeah, so that's kind of my skill, which I feel like a lot of comedians would have that skill as well. Yes and no, because there's two things going on. Like one yes. is being a good editor. Yep. And the second is wanting to edit someone else. And I think that you have to, in your heart, feel like there's enough love to go around. And every once in a while, I'll meet a comedian who does not feel that way, who feels like there's only room for me. Oh, I'm the opposite of that. I know. Yeah, I am. Doesn't that make sense, what I'm saying? I guess a little bit, but I just find it, I don't know, I just find the whole thing thrilling and it's exciting for me. The idea of collaborating seems super fun to me. Yes. I feel like you're, you understand that there is room for you, for Judd, for Adam Sandler, for Mike Birbiglia. Um, I can keep going with the zillions of white males and yep. understand that each one of you is an individual in your own way. And you have sexism in a different way, unique to each of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm no, it's uh, – I mean that's I, that's something – and I'm going to name drop, so please don't. You can't not. All of your friends are famous. No. I was going to ask you, what is it like to be in a world where everyone is so, so successful and then there's you? <laughs> that was perfectly written and delivered, by the way. Uh, the, the setup and then the turn and perfect. I have no notes for that one. Oh, um, good. I feel loved. Uh, <laughs> um, early on, Jerry Seinfeld, he said that don't compare yourself to other people. I mean, it's impossible not to on some level. But he also, I don't know if you know this, he had a huge career setback in the early 80s. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was on the show Benson, oh, the sitcom. I remember Benson. And got fired off that show because he couldn't act. Or they that was the word that it was like, I don't know if it was, yeah, I think that got you fired know, off that show. That is so interesting because when, he, you know, one of the things that made Seinfeld, there are many reasons why Seinfeld was so fantastic, but one of them was that he hired all of these really consummate actors. Of course, of course, the, around him. It's like the Bob Newhart uh, style. But I love that he said that to you because you are in the same niche as him. You do what would be considered, I think, observational comedy. A little bit, a little bit. I'm my, you haven't seen my act recently because I'm doing a lot of music now. So I'm, So let's talk about that a little I bit. I love it. You did it um, at BAM with Sarah Silverman. Were you there that night? Yes. So you saw it. It's magical. It's a blast. I love doing it. 
when I was a kid, there was a comedian named Victor Borga. No one remembers him anymore under the age of 70, but I just love music and comedy. And I know, I know, Katie, that some comedians look down on that. When did you start playing piano? About 10 years ago on stage. But you started on stage? Uh, excuse me. I, I'm sorry. I misunderstood your question. That's on me. <laughs> you meant when did I first start playing piano, not in my act, just playing it. Oh, I started noodling around in high school, although I will say never took a lesson, completely self-taught. Really? Yes. You know what this tells? I hope that if anyone gets anything out of this podcast, it's if they're a parent to not send their children to piano lessons because I took piano for 15 years. I can't do anything. <laughs> I love it. You're self-taught and you're, you know, already on network television. Right. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. Now, you've per you continue to perform all over the country. I want to talk a little bit about your special, um, The Chronicles of Fetterman. Well, it's not a special. It's just a CD. It's, just it's a, a three-CD compilation. It's a three-CD or three-disc or three-volume because kids Can today— Can people download it also? Yes, of course, of course. On Spotify? Yes. Yes, Wayne Fetterman. Okay, so it starts out in 1984 and ends in a mall in Israel. Is this yeah. supposed to be a horror film? What is this? Is this, a, is this like my childhood? What's going on? <laughs> well, you know, you start your dream. You start out on the Upper East Side start, at the comic strip. You start out your dream. That is exactly where it ends up. It, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's my journey. That is my journey. But you I'm had, embracing it. You had kept the footage. I thought that was fantastic and really fun. Um, books. Um, Gatorade. <laughs> your thoughts. Low fat, low calorie, or... Go ahead, guys. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about the fact that you wrote two books about a certain member of the... A former member of the Pistols, Peter Maravich. <laughs> okay. This is just... <laughs> If, if research Peter is what Rich. you're known for, <laughs> this, this is going <laughs> off the tracks in a huge we have, way. We have gone, like, not only have we gone off the tracks, we've gone, like, this is also telling me. So I've been fasting for two days, and I Pourquoi? don't. It's a long story. But so anyways, okay, so let's talk about your writing in terms of you've written about a basketball a player. That it's you a book. It two went, books. No, it's a book. Oh, it's just one. It went to paperback under a slightly different title. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the one book that you've written. It's not related to comedy. Yeah, he played for the Pistols. <laughs> Pistons. Oh my God! He didn't play Pistons. for the Pistons either. Um, who did Pete Maravich play for? He played at LSU. Okay. College, Division One college. Tell me about it. Still holds the record for the most points scored in a college career. Oh wow! Yeah. Why is that? Because he was a phenom. This is one of the greatest sports. He's one of the great sports stories of all time because it's Shakespearean. It it appealed to my dramatic side. Most sports stories are all the same. They struggle. They struggle. They struggle. They hit a home run. They run around the bases. They win. Right. You know that's how they go. Uh, the Coosers that uh, he makes the shot. They all run off the court. This does not end that way. It ends in the most. I don't want to use the word tragic, but just heart-wrenching, early death, um, someone not fulfilling their dreams. It's not just one thing. But basically, this kid trades in his childhood to become this basketball magician. Just basically, like, eight hours a day, practice, practice. No one practiced more. So, like, goes to LSU, can score 50 points a game without even trying. It's like he's just that great. 
goes to the NBA, the play gets this huge contract, the players all hate him. Why he, is that? Because he's making, he's getting all this attention. He's a white guy. The league is kind of changing a little bit. They're like, I'm, <laughs> I'm a barely can, you know, make money here, and this kid's getting a million dollars. Oh, and he's getting, to, he's doing commercials because he's got this floppy head of hair. So the one thing he wants to do, play basketball, he ends up hating. Like his dream, he doesn't like playing NBA basketball. And he's still phenomenal, but his teammates can resent him. And then it gets even worse. His mom commits suicide. And at that one point, he's just like, I just want to win a championship because, you know, I'm being criticized for not being a team player or whatever. Doesn't happen. Comes achingly close. Walks away from basketball. The team he's playing for the next year wins the championship. Becomes suicidal. Cut to a few years later. Finally finds a peace with Christianity. Becomes like a born again. Drops dead. Playing a pickup game of basketball with some Christian buddies of his. They do an autopsy. They find out, oh, my God, he was missing his left coronary artery. So he should have been dead before he hit the age of 20, let alone play sports, let alone play sports on a level that's unimaginable, still holds records today. And, uh, yeah, it's just an amazing sports human story. So that's what appealed to it. So you got to write this book based on what experience writing uh, about? <laughs> That's the loaded question. So what experience <laughs> did you have? I actually co-wrote it with another guy who had written a number of biographies before. So he kind of helped walk me through it. But I'm a great researcher, and I met the Maravich family. And there had never been an authorized biography of Pete Maravich. I don't know how you balance everything. You have stand-up. You have your new music career with composing. Mm-hmm. You're doing television shows and and I know that you make a lot of money from residuals it sounds like and from commercials <laughs> and from stand up touring but I don't know how you get to all of the different things or how you make room to I my life is not I it seems like I do, I like doing a lot of things and I just I feel like my life is not that busy okay I just don't I mean I sleep in I like to sleep till 10:30 or 11 oh nice yeah I really do and I take a nap so interesting. So doing the composition, does that give you joy? Do you still get... Yes. As much creative joy as I can have. I love it. Do you feel like a certain level of joy that each person has a different kind of uh, range, so to speak? You really think about it. You intellectualize these things. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. So tell me again. You feel like each person has a range of joy? Well, this joy? is a theory. It's not, it's not my theory, but I think it's an interesting one. Yeah? That... Um, if you look at your baseline and you look at like the highest point of joy that you've had, that you can you would have that regardless of what the circumstances are in your oh, life. Oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe I. This is this is my. If you care about my philosophy at all, yes. My philosophy is you and only you are responsible for your happiness. Really? Yeah. There's a book I read. That really has helped me a lot. I'm a self-help. It's by Ron L. Hubbard. <laughs> it's many. It's not just the book. There's also this device where you hold on to two like candles, and there's a meter on the other side. Um, what is the book that you read? The Four Agreements. Oh yeah. So what are the Four Agreements? They are in no particular order. Don't assume. Okay. Do your uh, best. Do work? your do your best. Be impeccable with your word. I love that. That means also what you tell yourself. 
And, um, oh, this is the hardest one. And it's slightly adjacent to don't assume, which is don't take things personally. I think that when I don't take things personally, I am at my happiest at work. Uh, at what? At work. In, in our industry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I don't Those think... Those are great agreements and uh, great, really helped me a lot. And that helps you with your, in your everything, work, too. Everything, everything. Do you feel very safe and stable in your career? I always feel like I'm just trying to break in and I hope I get it. This is what I feel like. I feel like my career, I've had a lot of things where I thought it was going to like jump to another level and it didn't. So I'm going to describe my career using a sound. Okay. And again, I'm totally, you know me, I'm a happy, grateful guy. Yeah. I have a fine career. I'm not, no, nowhere near complaining. But, you know, I have, like, these grand ambitions, obviously, and friends of mine are, like, on these. So, anyway, this is my career. Go ahead. Set it up. Wayne Fetterman's career in sound. Wayne Fetterman's career in sound? Uh, oh. Yes, I have these grand ambitions. You know, whether you see Broadway show or, mm-hmm. you know, my stand-up or anything. But, um and sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm, but I try, not, not try, I do enjoy all of it. Like that's my, that's the key to Fetterman. That's the key to Wayne. Besides talking about myself in the third person. Yes. That is the key to Fetterman. From 1985, you've been making a living. Correct. Before that, you had a bunch of temp jobs, including driving a cab. No I wanted question. to hear about um, driving a cab. It's in New York City, the shift. I've worked for a fleet. My shift was 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., 12 hours. Ask me the biggest celebrity I picked up. Who was the biggest celebrity? Anne Rankin. Do you know who she is? No. Oh, I love that you don't know who Anne Rankin is. She, is. she was like Bob Foss, one of Bob Fosse's protégés. Oh, wow. She was in a show called Dancing at that time. She was also obviously in All That Jazz. She's amazing in that movie. You know, he only directed like four or five movies. He's... Was she excited that you knew who she was? No. <laughs> but, uh, but but you were. What what did you get out of having her in your cab? Uh, what did I get out of it? Just that it was like I just never thought uh, most of the people, I mean, there's obviously millions of people here. Yeah. You know, so it's like that I would know one of the persons was just like great. Yeah. I was hoping I was going to pick up somebody famous, like Bill Murray or something. So anyway, that was my cab experience didn't last long i hated it okay I, even though i love driving i just it was too, too i just couldn't you know i would fall asleep i'd like pull over and sleep for an hour i just couldn't do i physically couldn't do it and then again that was at my peak you know i was like 20 21 years old or something um i do want to talk about one thing that i think is hard it's exciting to have so many friends who are in the business i think that that can be really inspiring but in other ways i wonder if that lends itself to sort of a funhouse mirror what's it like having because i think most of your friends are in show business not all of them okay not all not all what would you say the percentage is in in... at least more than half definitely more than half of my friends are yeah and does does that how does that affect you positively and negatively do you find i don't know i mean that's i don't even think about all those lines like how does that affect me say it again um I don't even think so about So you don't really things. deal with uncertainty right now, it sounds like, in your career. Like, you know that you will get another job. I don't. You don't. But who knows? Okay. But you. But in your heart, do you feel like... No. Okay. I don't, and, and not in that, like, oh, I'm not going to get another job. What's going to happen? Yeah. Just like, 
Who knows what's going to happen? That's why that four agreements book is very much like being in the don't assume. Don't assume I'm going to get a job. Don't assume I'm not going to get a job. It's exactly right to not make it necessarily negative either. Right. I I think the one thing I I disagreed with with what you said. I love it. I loved the four agreements part. But? um, Because that's what one can control, and I loved that. But the idea that you're entirely um, responsible, you said, for your own circumstances? No, for your own happiness. For your own happiness. So what if someone is a Syrian refugee and um, their leg has been shot off, Mm -hmm. they can't get their medication, and they've been separated from their entire family? Awful, awful. Did you ever read a book called... Oh, my God. Like, I just think that circumstances are sometimes beyond people's control. I know. There's a book about a guy who survived the Holocaust. It's, oh, man's search for meaning. Oh, it's one of the best books in the world. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about it. Yeah. He, I read that book and I was like, oh, it's all about how you perceive your surroundings. It's up to you. I, let me give you an example. Yes, I guess that guy can be depressed. And yes, I understand there are, but that's the most extreme situation. That's the most extreme. Yeah, I just, I feel that it's a very American thing to sort of just, like, I guess what I'm trying to do with my life yes. is to live. I, love, I feel like now I can help you. Go. Is to live with uncertainty and to be okay with that and to accept that as, as. What is one of the agreements? Don't assume. Again, are you saying it's easier because I've had some level of success so I, like, can, like, relax? I do think circumstances play a big role in people's lives more than they realize. Yes, I do think that uh, stability. This is a great debate. I this think is that, now we're doing it. Think, this I'm enjoying. I think that economic stability, you have a, a really strong community of people who really love you. Um, and you have individual resources, meaning you yourself have a lot of talent, and you also have had it demonstrated and have experience. And um, yes, I do think that there are circumstances that are sometimes beyond someone's control. And I, I guess my fear, what I don't like to do, is to blame someone if they feel bad or if life isn't going their way to say, well, if you only had a better attitude. I look at the whole thing differently than you do, I guess. Yeah. I look at the whole thing as that. Well, you're looking from a top-down perspective, right? Because you're even, part of the top 1%, and I'm, I'm not. So I'm not part of the top 1%. Just, but, I, but I don't know what you're saying. You're saying, like, I, I do what I want to do yeah. in my life, and in that way, I'm in the top 1%. And I yeah. agree with that. But um, I see, I think, and I know you're skeptical of American can-do-itness, but. No, 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 I'm not. I think it's important to have that. I just don't think it's everything. But I'm saying I feel that I won the lottery just being born here. Again, I'm a white guy. I understand that I have these things, these advantages, because I'm a white male, but... Yeah, but I also understand what you're saying, I think, is that, like, you feel this, whether it's a blessing or a joy or luck, you you enjoy what is... I try is. to. Yeah. I try. And again, yeah. what did I... How did I describe my career? Like, slightly... Disappointed when it wouldn't go to levels that I th- was hoping it would. So I deal with that, but now I. What helps you deal with that when you you know just gotten rejected just from a moment. role and it goes to a best friend and maybe he has more <laughs> hair than you, maybe he's thinner, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, it takes it just takes a sec. I, once I, I get a little disappointed, and then one night sleep usually does it, and then I'm like, all right, all right, I'm still. It's still okay. Let me give you a great example. Yeah. For years, years, when I was starting out, from 1984, as you know, 
through 92. So that's how many? Six years? Eight years. Yeah. Almost a Hollywood marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> my dream, my goal was to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yeah. Right? That was the. I that don't, was it. Yeah. That was yeah. the thing. I came agonizingly close. The booker liked me, but then he got drunk the next time he saw him. And it was just like, could, it just wasn't, it didn't happen. And it really devastated me. And it was real a d- disappointment. Need, I, I still, to this day, have not watched Johnny Carson's last Tonight Show because I was so devastated. Yeah. I wasn't part of it. I understand. I talked to a comedian on a podcast two, three months ago. And he was like, Wayne, I think it's amazing that you got close to the tonight. Like that yeah. was part of your life, that this adventure that happened that came up ultimately short. He goes, I love hearing this story that Jim McCauley got drunk the second time and the, the, and all of that. He goes, that's amazing. He goes, I know it's a disappointment to you, but for me hearing it, it's like that's an amazing show business moment. And I was like, that's it. That's the secret right there. Yeah, to be part of the ride and enjoy the ride. Of course. And also That's the all absurdity. we ultimately, all we have. But also the absurdity that, like, the difference for you of getting and not getting on The Tonight Show was whether someone was <laughs> drunk or not. It also shows, like, how random and arbitrary the business yes, is. Yes, and you're, like, trying to scale this mountain. And yeah, you're like... put strategies to it and this or that and the end. The, right, exactly yeah. right. Um, thank you, Wayne Fetterman. You're welcome. That's it for this episode. Thank you to Rob Schulte, Nora Lynn, ACAS, and to all of you for listening. Go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out about future shows. Um, We have some coming up with New York Comedy Festival and more. That's it. Have a good week.